Hi everybody, and welcome to another episode of Amy Adler's How I Hire. Hi everybody, and welcome back to another episode of How I Hire podcast. My name is Amy Adler of Five Strengths Career Transition Experts. I write resumes and develop career portfolios for executives and their teams. Today, I have the incredible honor of having Mr. John Gates with us. John is a talent acquisition industry veteran. I am told that he has seen um, the processes go through for more than 75,000 offers. Um, and I know that he does consulting and has um, worked in this industry a long time and is also um, a coach in compensation. So John, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. I have told you many times how glad I am that our paths crossed, however serendipitously, and I am so proud to, to have you here and, and honestly to call you friend. So thank you for joining us here and please do tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate the invitation to be here and shed a little light on some of the mysteries of of recruiting. I know when you're a job seeker, it's tough to know what goes on behind the scenes. And uh, I appreciate everything that you do in prepping candidates to be successful. It, it helps me on my end as well. So my name is John Gates. I run two different businesses right now. But before I launched these businesses, I was the head of talent acquisition and recruiting for multiple Fortune 500 companies. I oversaw global teams of recruiters in those roles and uh, started off just after college recruiting for a temporary agency and worked my way into corporate recruiting from there. So I've been doing corporate recruiting for nearly 30 years and then consulting for years after that. My, uh, my, my preference is to work on the process issues of recruiting. So I get really frustrated when I see things that are you know, bad candidate experiences and I don't like to see candidates tripping all over themselves, making mistakes. It makes me feel bad. Uh, most people are amateur candidates, and that's the way it should be. You're only going to change jobs a few times in your lifetime, hopefully. So if you're really good at applying, and you're really good at interviewing, and you're really good at negotiating, and really good at writing your resume, that means you've changed jobs maybe a little too much. Indeed. <laughs> practice, right? So it's I just want to say it's perfectly normal to feel like you're a beginner at all this stuff and to find somebody like Amy to help you with your resume or other people that are good at interviewing to coach you along the way. That's perfectly normal to feel that way. The two businesses that I started, um, one is called Recruiting Transformations, and that's where I help companies to fix their broken recruiting process. So if it's taking too long to fill positions or the, the recruiting team needs some additional help. The process is messed up in some way, like companies hire me to go and untangle the, the, the knot um, and make things faster, better, cleaner, less expensive for everyone involved. So I do that uh, on a full-time basis as a consultant for companies. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started another business called Salary Coach which is an interesting business. And to my knowledge, there's nobody else doing anything like this. But I help candidates, particularly salaried candidates, to negotiate the best possible pay package that they could get. Mentioned already people 
are are inexperienced with talking about money in the recruiting process. They don't know how to answer the questions, um, even in the application. What's your salary requirement? Sometimes your blood runs cold, wondering it, what number you should put in that box. Like people freak out a little bit sometimes on the inside and think, well, if I put something that's too low, I just took money out of my own pocket. And if I put something that's in too high, I'm not going to get that phone call. So the stress goes up and I help candidates to know exactly how to navigate all those touch points so they don't lowball themselves in the process and come out of it with the best, best offer they can get without putting stuff at risk. So that's a little about me and what I'm doing. Well, I appreciate your giving us some background and insight into your expertise. And I think you're right. I think that is uh, maybe the scariest part of the, the job search process, seconded maybe only by the tell, a, tell me about yourself question that inevitably shows up in resume writing and in the interview, uh, but helping people figure out where they fit um, and what is going to amplify their candidacy, um, sustain their candidacy, and secure that opportunity at the level that they should be compensated at, I think is, is crucial. So um, the world needs you. Um, and I, you know, I trust what you do and I have seen it in action. And I believe in the value of knowing, uh, having a bit of an edge um, based on somebody's expertise, somebody with the window that you have, um, somebody who can genuinely say this is how i hire this is what i do as a talent acquisition professional to lead teams to make these kinds of decisions and i know that we've talked about you've seen some pretty amazing successes and some pretty um i don't want to say failures that's not really fair but opportunities that were not taken where um job seekers left left something on the table that they could have added to their pay package and done yeah. better. I would say uh, in my career, you mentioned already, I've seen 75,000 offers in my lifetime. So a lot of those I personally handled, but mostly I was overseeing offers and overseeing recruiters and teaching them how to negotiate against candidates. So if a recruiter got stuck or there was a negotiation underway, I would have to weigh in on that and coach the recruiter on how to navigate through that and close the deal with the candidate and the hiring manager together. So it's there, there are a lot of mistakes that candidates make, a lot of mistakes that companies make. And so one of the things I do is I try to help people see the landmine before they step on it. Uh, don't approach the negotiation in this way. I, I try to bring people into a collaboration discussion instead of issuing ultimatums. Uh, I think that's generally a negotiating mistake. I've seen a lot of, of advice on LinkedIn that I don't think is very good advice. And I'll give you some examples. Like um, very recently, I saw somebody um, go in there and say, I demand this, this level of pay. So they might say, I need $300,000 or I'm not interested in talking to you. And from their perspective, it was like, this is a good strategy because um, if they talk to me, then I know that they can meet my pay requirement and everything is good. The reason why it's not a good strategy is until you've talked to somebody, they don't know that you're worth $300,000. And 
it's through the course of talking to people and interviewing with them that you persuade them that you're worth more. And so if, if you haven't made the case for yourself yet, it's very easy. You have no leverage early on in that conversation to make demands. Now, if things go very well and they say yes to your demand, it's still a mistake because you could have made more probably. If, if they say yes to 300,000 and then continue the conversation, it's because that falls within their range of, of possibilities somewhere, somehow. What if they were willing to offer you 325? You just told them they only have to offer you 300. And so you just lowballed yourself without, <laughs> by mistake. So I think, I think coming at things like um, in a combative way and a, um, an ultimatum issuing sort of way is generally a mistake. But here's this here's the secret. I think most people perceive negotiation to be an adversarial combative sort of process. And so they don't think that it can be anything else. That's why a lot of people shy away from negotiating because they don't like combative um, situations. They don't like conflict, so they're going to avoid it. The risk is too high, so they don't they don't want to um, get into that sort of combative environment um, an, an analogy that i have sometimes i think people feel like negotiation is similar to a gladiator event where you have to strap on your armor and march into an arena and cross swords with someone and it's a duel to the death it's me against you and really you both want the same thing you both want a recruiter wants to to close out a position that they've been working on for a while. A hiring manager wants to fill a vacancy, and you want to uh, accept the offer. So, I think a key learning here is learn how to approach it like a collaboration. Uh, help them to you know engage engage with them, I guess, in a conversation. Um, ask them for their ideas on how certain gaps could be closed instead of saying this is what i want saying here's what i'm seeing what can be done and these are all just like general general tips and stuff like that um, but hopefully some of your audience can pick up some of what i'm laying down and maybe benefit a little bit but the, the point here is that negotiation does not have to be a duel to the death it can be a, a a more comfortable conversation that's collaborative and whoops you're good my light just went off <laughs> <You're good. laughs> i'm sitting here in a conference room with an automated um light switch and if i sit here like a bump on a log too long it thinks there's nobody in here <laughs> i understand this yeah so back to what i was saying though i think a lot of people are a little bit worried that they're going to burn up relationships on the way in or they're going to damage a relationship by being combative and a lot of people do exactly that they i've seen deals fall apart many many times um, not as a negotiation coach because my clients usually aren't making this mistake but as a recruiting leader and as a recruiter i've seen candidates um, create a whole new personality for themselves when it comes time to you know, advocate for money. You know, and people are told you got to stand up for yourself. You've got to advocate for yourself because nobody else is going to do that. And if you combine that with this idea that, that negotiation should be 
combative, then sometimes they put on this mantle of aggression that's just not them. And the recruiter or the hiring manager feels that. And it's like, wow, this isn't the person that we saw in the interview process. What have they been hiding from me? Um, I'm not sure I want to hire this person anymore. And when a hiring manager turns around and changes their mind, now the recruiter has to share the bad news with, with the candidate. It's like, and that happens sometimes. This is, this is how a deal can fall apart. And usually you won't get the straight scoop from the recruiter. They won't say, well, you became a raving lunatic in the offer process. So we decided we didn't like that very much. They're just going to say, you know what? We've decided to withdraw our offer. We're going to pursue another candidate that came along that fits the requirement just a little bit better than you. And that's what you'll hear. So it might be actually interesting to talk about things like why candidates don't get feedback. Because I think that's something that candidates wonder about a lot. And I have a lot of experience in that. Uh, do you think that they might be interested? Absolutely. So one of the... So I called it the black box because job seekers see the application process as um, adversarial um, or they see it as like they, they say, I'll take 300 and, and that's going to be my point of entry. And that's kind of like going to the grocery store. Like you don't expect to, to um, negotiate over the cost of a can of soup. Right. Um, but um one thing that struck me in that, and I think about fear a lot, actually, I wrote a whole book about job search and fear, but this is this seems to be a, a function of fear that they want to control the entire situation or they go in with a whole new personality because they're, um, they're told to be aggressive. Um, and then they might get rejected because they behave so strangely, but they never come in at the middle. Um, and we'll get to the middle part later because I think that's where people want to hear like what am I supposed to do but this idea that they they get rejected and they don't know why whether it's because they threw, threw down the gauntlet at the beginning or came in with you know uh, both hands you know with swords or whatever um, at some point they're gonna they're gonna get a rejection and they're, they're gonna have no idea why whether it's at the negotiation stage or earlier and as as a resume writer and career coach I'm always saying you're never going to know. And I'm going to go out on, on a limb and speculate that it has something to do with liability, but it might not. It might be something, it might be there were a thousand applicants and we can't get back to everybody. I mean, nobody, everybody has an idea. Nobody really yeah. has one. Yeah. So there are lots of points where you can get rejected. And I think this would be a good conversation to have on your podcast because this is, this is an expectation and a hope that all candidates want. And they say, why is it so difficult for me to get feedback so I understand why I was declined or why I was rejected? I'm going to try to explain why. That doesn't mean that it's going to be a happy answer. <laughs> so we're not, we're not holding I, you to you know the yeah, the, but I can give you, yeah, Amy, I can give I can give you the audience though one tip that would improve the chances of actually getting. So I, I, and it might work some of the time. So it's better than nothing at all. And so when you apply and you get a rejection after applying before you even talk to somebody, even if you meet all the qualifications, like you're looking at a job description and it's like, there are 10 qualifications and you meet 100% of them. And it's like, I'm perfect for this job. 
I don't understand why I was just declined and I didn't even get to talk to somebody. All right, so there could be a few explanations for this. One is there was an internal applicant that came around at the last minute. And so a lot of companies want to prioritize internal people over external. And if you worked at a company and you were applying internally, you would probably hope for that, that you would get some preference over an external person uh, for a, a nice opportunity internally. So that does happen sometimes. I think most often, though, this happens because there's a lot of good qualified applicants and they have to make a cut somewhere. And if you if you fast or put yourself in the in the role of the recruiter, put yourself in the recruiter's chair for a moment. The average corporate recruiter has 25 or 30 open positions that they're managing at any given point in time. So if they have 40 hours in a week and they have 30 positions, they have an hour or so to work on every one of those, or they're not going to touch something for a week. And if they do that, then they get yelled at. Um, so. They have very limited time. I think that's what I'm trying to say here is recruiters are crunched for time all the time. So if you have 200 applicants for a position and you look at all 200 and out of those 10%, 20 of them look really good on paper, you only have time to, to do a phone interview with maybe five or six of those. So you're still making another cut somewhere. And it might be these six have slightly better experience, or maybe they work for more desirable companies that are slightly better, or it could be that they did something in the compensation. Like usually when you're applying, you have a chance, they'll ask you, what's your salary requirement? And a lot of times people will put open or negotiable in that box. Now, if you're crunched for time and you have 20 people that look good on paper, half of them have given you a number, and you can say, well, these ones I know are falling in the range that I have to work with. These ones didn't really answer the question. And you have to decide, like, am I going to schedule? Am I going to call them? Am I going to spend 15 or 20 or 30 minutes on the phone with them only to discover they're way outside? That's why people who put open or negotiable in that situation can sometimes fall, fall below the line. So... I think it's a better move actually to put something that's kind of on the lower side of what you would consider in that box, just so you can get the phone call. And then you have a time, an opportunity during that phone call while you're talking to a human being to reframe that number into a range of some kind. One opportunity to do that. And I coach people on it precisely, you know, how to make that shift. But there are other reasons. So it might be. Those might be some, it could be that there's something in your resume that's a, an unlisted requirement. It's wrong to think that all the requirements are actually listed. It might be that the hiring manager has a, a short list of pet peeves. <laughs> the recruiter knows them, but they're not going to put them in the posting. And it might be, uh, an example could be, well, I've known three people who've worked for company A and I don't like any one of them. So don't give me anybody that works at company A. Well, you're not going to put that in an advertisement. You're not going to say, if you work at company A, don't bother applying. Um, it might be that the person's looking for a potential successor 
And so they are looking for a certain career trajectory or something like that. So they could be a viable successor because they're going to retire in a couple of years. And maybe you're, maybe you're perfectly fit for the job because of the way your work history stacks up. They don't see you that way. And it's, there's a lot of things that can happen at the application stage. So then you get into interviews and this is where things really like people apply for a hundred jobs a week and they get a lot of declines. The most hurtful, no feedback is after you've interviewed and then you get an email from somebody saying, thanks, but no thanks. We're moving on with other candidates. You really want an explanation then. And it's, it's hard. Sometimes a recruiter will call you and they'll say, uh, we've decided to move forward with other candidates, but here's why they won't give you feedback. There are two reasons. One is the legal team says, don't give feedback because if you say something that's taken wrong, they could assume that what you said means you're too old. Your, your skin is the wrong color. You're the wrong gender. Um, these are all illegal reasons to decline somebody. And if somebody wants to pick a legal fight with you, they'll take information that you gave and use it in a lawsuit against you. So there's like, there's no real, here's the real bottom line of why you're not getting feedback as a candidate. There's no upside to the organization in giving it to you. You think it's the, well, it's the right thing to do. If a company gives feedback to candidates, um, that message will somehow get out there and it will encourage people to apply and participate. Um, the truth is that doesn't really happen, actually. <laughs> that the benefit of giving feedback never really comes back to a company, but the risk of giving feedback is always there. Here's the other downside to the recruiter. When they give you feedback and they and they say, well, you didn't get the job because of this, this, or this. The natural inclination of the candidate is to disagree and to argue and to try to relitigate the decision. They want to change the outcome. They want to say, well, I don't know why they got that. I don't have experience in that area because I worked here and I did these projects. And you just start arguing with the recruiter that you're bringing conflict into an already uncomfortable thing a recruiter has to do. The worst thing they have to do in a job is tell people they didn't get the job and let somebody down. They don't want to do that. So now they're they have to listen to the argument. There's no way they're going to go back to their hiring manager and relitigate the decision most of the time. Now, if they do bring feedback, it might be before the decision was made. And that's why they're bringing feedback to seek additional input from you. So. These are the reasons why you're not getting feedback. There's no upside to the recruiter or the organization to give it. There's only risk, and there's a big risk, like emotional safety risk for the recruiter. There's legal risk for the organization. And in some cases, recruiters have been fired because they gave feedback that was then misconstrued or misunderstood. And then somebody ends up posting something on Reddit or Glassdoor or who knows what and a recruiter gets fired for sharing feedback. So here's the tip. If you want feedback, as you're building a relationship with the recruiter, you're going through the phone screen, um, you're talking to them, you can say, uh, and they invite you to interview, you can say, 
I'm excited about interviewing. I have a favor to ask, though. If I accept the interview and come in, uh, would it be okay if we could schedule at the same time a five or 10 minute debrief meeting after the interview so that I can hear what they thought? And um, I promise not to hold you to it. Like if you tell me that I just wasn't a fit and you tell me why that's okay, I promise to take it like a grown up and um, not, I won't argue. I just want to understand. And so you have to create this offer of, emotional safety for the recruiter to, to to share the feedback with you and then you have to keep your promise a lot of recruiters have heard that stuff before and then they they share the feedback and instead of that they, they the natural tendency of the candidate is to disagree with the decision like they misunderstood me they misunderstood my qualifications they um, and so it turns into an argument so you have to just say I really appreciate you sharing that feedback with me. Thank you. That's going to help my job search going forward and drop it. And if more candidates did that, there would be a whole lot more feedback being shared. But I'm telling you, they don't behave that way. <laughs> and oh, I just want to say that's phenomenal and insight that I honestly, I don't think I've ever heard that advice anywhere else. Um, and I am confident that our listeners are going to take that to heart. Um, and it, what it does is sets up the conversation as asking for permission. If the recruiter says, no, I can't, then there's no love loss and, and the relationship stays intact and nobody feels harmed. Um, yeah. Maybe the candidate isn't getting what they're looking for in that future conversation, but the interview will still happen. And the conversation about feedback is is there's a lid on it and and there's no um questioning as to whether that will take place so the candidate goes in if the recruiter says no and i don't know if that's a typical thing but if the recruiter says no then the candidate goes in knowing that the feedback won't be there and they're not disappointed when it's not yeah yeah i have i've been in organizations where it was absolutely forbidden to give feedback because of the legal issues or the, the strength of the legal team in an organization and their political influence. And so when I'm in that situation, I actually, I preempt the request by saying, uh, we'd like to interview you. Uh, I just wanted to let you know ahead of time that unfortunately it's our policy not to share feedback. So at the end of it, it's gonna be a, a couple of different possibilities. One is I'm gonna say, it looks like you're the leading candidate. Now let's move toward an offer. Or it's going to be, um, I'm really grateful that you spent time with us, but unfortunately, it's not a match from our end. And those are the two things that are going to happen. And uh, if you're okay with that, then we can proceed. So I'm very transparent with people up front. And I set that expectation in, in those kind of environments, in those kind of cultures. But um, sometimes you can get the feedback. But here's a here's a, a little negotiating tip, and that is when somebody wants something from you, that's the time to ask for something in return. So the wrong time to ask for feedback is at the end of the process after you've been declined or when you're being declined. You don't have any leverage to get feedback at that point or even to ask for it. Like they're no longer interested in you, so why should they say yes? Now, if they invite you to interview, they want you to say yes. 
they want you to, it means that you're passing forward and you're going, they've selected you, they want to talk to you, they're, they want to schedule you, they want something from you. And you can say, well, I'm excited to interview with you. I've got one small favor to ask. Can we book that 10 minute thing for a couple of days after the interview? I'd like to get some feedback and understand which way it's going. And that, that also helps to slow down this ghosting process that happens and things like so you get that calendared while they're calendaring the interview they're calendaring that as well so just a little bit of advice when people want something from you that's that's an opportunity you have leverage right then to get something else in return even if it's small i love hearing that um can i i don't know if you intended this and you please tell me if i'm not thinking about this the right way when you ask for feedback after the fact, after you've been declined, after the company has chosen to go in another direction, it's too late. It, it, and it, it might feel very satisfying to put closure on it that way. But in the process of job search coaching or career coaching, it is entirely too late to hear what went wrong after things went yeah. wrong. wrong. You can it's always wrong. ask, but your chances of getting meaningful feedback are not good. And, you know, quite often the real feedback is is a little different than what you might even get, even if feedback is, is going to be shared. So uh, the reasons why people get declined sometimes are super meaningful and relevant. It's like, well, they uh, a big chunk of this job is bringing new products to market and you know, we probed her experience and bringing new products to market and we just didn't come away confident that she would be able to get this ball across the finish line. I mean, that's legitimate feedback. But, you know, what if they, what if they came across in a certain way? Like, came across as arrogant. Well, if I'm the recruiter giving that feedback, how can I tell a candidate, well, you came across as arrogant? And it's like, well, what do you mean I came across as arrogant? Well, when they asked this question, this is the way you answered it. The tone was such that you're just inviting a fight. It's insulting kind of to share that um, kind of information. And it could even be a petty thing. Like, well, yeah, when I was interviewing this person, uh, they had a piece of salad stuck on their teeth. I have. I have seen hiring managers in virtual interviews like this say, um, like they were wearing glasses like I am now, and maybe they have multiple you know, screens or something like this. You're in an interview and something will pop up on the screen and they can see the reflection in the glasses and they assume that you're not paying attention to the interview if they see stuff like that happening. They'll, they'll think that you're trying to multitask during the interview. And I've seen many candidates declined because there was a perception from the hiring manager that they weren't completely focused on the interview. They weren't valuing the interviewer's time. Now, is that legit or not? I don't know. But those, those kind of things come up from time to time. People get declined based on some, sometimes the smallest things. Uh, it could even be a personality connection. Like I didn't, the person was too stoic or they were too lively or they were, they reminded me of my ex-girlfriend or, you know, it, it, there could be subtle mannerisms 
that just rubs somebody the wrong way. And, and it sounds completely unfair and it is, but sometimes by the time those decisions are made and candidates are stacked up against each other, it's, uh, it's difficult to undo the decision that's been made in the decision maker's head. Um, as a recruiter though, I have to challenge things that I think are unfair, but, and I do. And I think most people that are in my position do. Um, but if there's if there's this subtle dig against one candidate that swings the you know that that brings them down below somebody else that just did slightly better or the rapport was slightly stronger or something like that, um, it can uh, it can it can sway. And there's no real there's no real silver medal in recruiting. Like you win the gold or you don't win at all. So um, close doesn't really matter. You have to be the winner. I get that. And I think that that is profoundly unsatisfying for the person who was the runner up and they don't know this. Um, but I want to turn it around for a second and say that that's probably true from the corporate recruiter side too. They have an obligation. Their obligation is to the company. And not that, rec I mean, I know lots of recruiters. I have very good friends who are recruiters and I get to hear their insights and I'm very grateful for that. But corporate recruiters are obligated to the company, not to any particular candidate until they are in that process. And again, I'm, I'm looking at it from the outsider's perspective. So um, they want to win that game too. The recruiters want to win that game on behalf of the, the team for whom they're recruiting. And I, I, yeah. I think it would be disingenuous to think that as a candidate that you're more important at that stage. It's it's just not possible. It's important. It, it's possible to be important. It's impossible. It's possible to be part of the process. Yes. But the company is going to be preeminent. Yes. Yes. Well, good recruiters are very influential and they're trusted. So they're a trusted voice. But I'll say this too: recruiters get attached to some candidates. Uh, we all like when I'm working on a position. If I'm presenting three to five people to the manager. I tell them which ones I think are the leading candidates, and then I listen to them. And I help I help managers sometimes to avoid hiring mistakes. I think often hiring managers will overvalue technical competence, and they underestimate the power of like behaviors and things like that that I'm good at assessing. So. Um, for example, if you're hiring a person that knows the ins and outs of the technology and they're a super duper technology expert, but they have a hard time getting along with their peers, they don't take direction well from their boss, they can't deliver on a deadline. These are the kind of things that are going to drive a hiring manager crazy over a period of time. If you ask any boss, like, what's their what's their worst nightmare it's dealing with a person who isn't living up to the expectations in the role and when somebody's not performing well in a job it's usually not because they're technically incompetent it's because of behavior problems and so they're uh, they're being political inside the group they're um, they're causing problems on a project they're not able to deliver on time and it's letting teammates down. You know, these are the kind of things that I assess pretty deeply, but a hiring manager will often just say they know the code, they know the tech, they know 
this, that, and the other thing. Um, even if it's a non-technical job, like if it's a recruiter, you can get completely focused on, well, they know how to assess candidates. They know how to um, negotiate pay. They know how to do all the technical things. Yet <laughs> that same person who knows how to do everything might be a horrible fit for the rest of the team, might browbeat the assistant, might... <laughs> um, might not take direction well, might not adapt into um, process or procedures of a new company or who knows what. So so I guess in a way, not to point a finger at uh, my, my partner in crime here, but to trust the person who's done this 75,000 times is a good idea. From The manager should do that. The hiring manager should do that. And the yeah. candidate should do that. Um, yes. And we often say um, in resume writing, we prepare people to get to the point where they're talking to folks like you. And if it didn't happen, it was for a reason and maybe it was a very good one. Um, and we try to help people feel better about it and move forward. Um, but I am learning that there was a very good reason that was happening um, in a way that was obscured to us. We can't tell what's been going on. Um, yeah. But I, I am even more, even more than I did before now going to trust those decisions because nobody wants to be in an organization in which they do not fit, even if they are technically excellent. Correct. Um, it's always like, sometimes you get declined for, uh, for good reasons and sometimes not so good reasons, but do you really wanna be at a company that isn't gonna value you or you don't fit into? Like I've, I think most people have worked for a boss that they don't fit with or in an organization that they don't fit with. You have to pretend to be somebody that you're not in order to succeed. That is exhausting. Um, you don't want that, believe me. But here's, here's another interesting tip for the job seekers out there. Um, when you're talking to a corporate recruiter, somebody in HR, they, they are screening you and they call you back to say, hey, we'd like to bring you in to meet our hiring team. The hiring manager wants to talk to you or something like that. A good thing to do is ask them for advice at that point. So you can say, well, I'm excited about, about meeting them. Can I get your advice for a second? Um, it looks like I'm going to be meeting with these three people. Um, if you are me, what, what subjects would you avoid? Uh, what, if you were me, uh, what, what would you emphasize? during this interview. I just want to make sure that I put my best foot forward. And so if you wouldn't mind, would you coach me a little bit and prepare me to meet with these people? And the recruiter is going to have a lot of inside information about what their personalities are, what they're likely to ask about. Uh, don't spend too much time. Like I mentioned before, recruiters are very time crunched people, but ask for just a couple of minutes of, of coaching and advice. People like it when you ask for their advice. And so um, I, I think that that's a very effective way. Whenever candidates ask me, I, I go into transparency mode, like I wanna be their advocate all of a sudden. And as soon as I start advising somebody, it also puts me in a position now where I kinda wanna advocate for them behind the scenes because they now they're, They've got my advice. Now I kind of want to see them succeed. It's a little bit of a psychological trick that candidates can bring into, into play. And it helps to bring the recruiter 
over to their side of the table. Now you're helping me. You're asking them to help you. Uh, once they're helping you, they're less opposed to you. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the psychology of the relationship um, demands that somebody be on the candidate side uh, at at some stage in the process. Uh, and it sounds like inviting that early in a very gentle and benign kind of way um, about the culture. Um, how do I dress if it's a uh, a particular way of, of, of presenting oneself? Um, all those kinds of questions, uh, the recruiter is going to have that insider information and making a friend is always better than making an enemy at that stage. Yeah, we talked a little bit about um, going into a, a collaborative mode. Like this is the very first step to bringing the recruiter into your camp and creating a collaborative partnership. So you're asking for advice, you're listening, now they're collaborating with you on having a good uh, interview experience. And you can say, I just want to make sure that they get all the information that they're really looking for to make a good hiring decision here. And you're, you're starting to say things like, I care about them making a good hiring decision here. Like, I'm on your side, you're on my side, we're on the same side. And when you start to talk then about compensation, it can have a more collaborative tone. When you get down to the offer, you know, you're collaborating on an offer package that's going to work for all parties. And it's just, it sets the right tone. So if you, if you forget to do that, there's still other ways. But I think that's a, a, a very interesting thing to try. And so maybe some of your audience would experiment with that and see how it works for them. Indeed. And I think the notion of engaging the recruiter as coach is something that we wouldn't expect. Well, I think often candidates expect the recruiter to be their coach. I think we've elaborated today that at some points in the conversation, it makes sense. At some point, as in after the whole thing is, is nailed down, it makes no sense at all. So with that in mind, could we possibly pivot to your um, compensation negotiation coaching practice oh, to sure. bring that coaching um, of any type um, where it fits in the in the conversation. Um, so sure. certainly capitalizing on your extensive recruiting experience, but putting on your negotiation coach um, persona. Um, how let, let's talk about that. So negotiation around compensation. What um, what would you say about that here? Uh, good question. And I love this topic. So thank you for giving me the I chance know. to talk about it. Um, I'm super passionate about this because I think most people leave money on the table. Sometimes it's a lot of money. And you mentioned early on that people are often driven by fear. And this is the situation here. Like people are conservative in negotiating uh, early in the process because they're like they're afraid about losing a phone call they're afraid about not being inv invited to interview they don't want to be screened out early on so they take a, a conservative approach uh, to negotiating and then at the end the last thing you want to do is screw up the offer like they've extended an offer to you and if you can imagine this like you're all excited you want 
you want to join the, the company, you like the job, your family is depending upon you landing this, particularly if you're unemployed and, you know, in this economy, maybe there's months more of unemployment ahead of you, uh, eviction or who knows what. You're staring down the barrel of really bad things if you can't get a salary going soon. So there's a, the stakes are incredibly high. Um, because the stakes are so high, you're really tempted to take whatever they offer and not push back very much. So I think people get shoved into this like conservative corner, this this overly cautious approach to things. Um, and I think that's that's natural to do. Um, so what I try to do is I help people to know how to talk about pay at every single step. So how to how to answer the salary requirements question when they're applying so that the phone will ring. And then when the phone rings and they ask you again, how much money do you need to make, Amy, in order to make this work? Well, the truth is you haven't interviewed yet and you really don't know the full scope of the, of the job or its demands. And so it's too early to answer that question. But you're pressured to answer anyway because you know if you screw it up, you're not going to get invited to interview. And so I help people to know how to navigate that conversation effectively. And then when they're getting ready to interview, one important thing you have to do is show how valuable you are. You have to you have to become the preferred candidate, but not just that. You have to show them how much money you're going to make them, or how much money you're going to save them, or how you make their nightmares go away, <laughs> or something like that. Like people hire people often based on emotion. Um, the the hiring team, the hiring manager, they're filling the vacancy for a reason. It's because they have a problem they need to solve. So I try to teach people how to identify those problems and then how to position themselves as a solution to those problems. Most candidates don't do this. They just go in and they interview and they just answer the interview questions instead of identifying the problems and becoming the solution to those problems. Now, if you can be the solution to their their fear and what's keeping them awake at night. You're going to give them a better night's sleep if they hire you instead of somebody else. You're going to have a much better chance of being not just the selected candidate, but you're going to be perceived as high value. So then an offer comes. And I think one of the worst things you can do when an offer comes is accept right on the spot. <laughs> and I'll, I'll say, like, this is kind of. This will make sense when I when I explain it. But the most value or the most the most leverage that you ever have in this entire process is between when they offer you the job and when you accept. Because now they want you. They've picked you. They want you to say yes. But you say yes right away and then you want something else. You just gave up all your leverage. Like leverage is tied up in giving them a yes. So you can make your yes contingent upon them giving you a couple of things. So resist at all costs, resist the temptation to say, yes, I'm so excited. Even if you love the offer, you should take a step back, take a deep breath and see if there's anything else. This is the time to ask for it. And you have to ask for it in a certain way, um, depending on the personalities involved and so on. So when I'm coaching people, I want to know all about the people that they met. Um, 
who they're, are they talking to HR about the numbers or are they talking to the hiring manager? Is it the CEO? Somebody reports to the CEO or is it far, far down in the organization? Are there 20 other people that are doing the same job as you or is there only one of you in the organization? The answer to that can give a lot of clues as to how flexible the salary might be or are they going to have to address a gap with a signing bonus or some other thing. So, and there's a long, long list of things you can ask for, uh, a very long list. So you have to get clear on what it is you want. So if what you really want is to work from home two days a week, and you haven't even discussed that with anybody, the time to ask for that is right here. Once they've made the offer and before you accept, because if you wait until after you've said yes, they've got no reason to give that to you now. So hopefully that's the, the, a couple of little golden nuggets for your audience. Um, but I help people to be, to be emotionally comfortable through the process. I prep them for all these conversations. And there's a couple of ways that I actually coach people. So one is the Salary Coach Academy. I've set this up to be a very inexpensive way of getting a lot of uh, information about how to talk about pay at every single step. So this is not me coaching, but it is me teaching. So I've got 30 or 40 video lessons in the Salary Coach Academy that talk about all of these things. And you can, you can watch a five-minute video and learn about how to talk about pay in the phone screen stuff or learn how to structure your counteroffer and things like this. Um, that's very inexpensive compared to like me coaching you at every step. That's a super time-intensive process for me. Um, it's hours and hours probably of working with you through all the steps. So that's uh, more expensive. And I want to make sure that if I'm working with you at that level, the money that you're spending on that coaching is more than covered by what you're going to make up. You know, you're going to you're going to recover that on the back end with a higher salary or a big signing bonus or something like that. I want to make sure there's the potential for that uh, to to agree that you're a good fit for that kind of coaching experience. Um, but I've had more and more people just coming to me at the offer stage. This is kind of interesting. This has exploded over the last couple of months. People not wanting the full coaching experience, but instead calling me or messaging me and saying, John, I've heard about you. I just got an offer. Is there any way that you can take a look at it and just coach me briefly on how I could explore if, it's, if it can be better? Now, I think you give up a lot of value that way, but I can do that in usually two or three hours of back and forth, us talking on Zoom, me looking at your offer helping you worsmith things. But um, that's I've got that priced much lower than, than coaching because it only takes a couple hours of doing it. So ideally, where when should people engage you? When they're in the process of having their resume done, uh, before then, before they even, uh, you tell me. Yeah, I think as early as possible in the process is ideal because you can paint yourself into a corner in the phone screen without knowing that you've just done that. Um, you can go through the interview process and just answer the um, answer the questions, and you might set yourself up for a lowball offer. And sometimes when people come at the offer stage, 
they say, John, help me. I just got a low ball offer. How can I fix it? Well, I can help them fix it a little bit, but it's kind of like they, they just offered you a Volkswagen Beetle and you want, uh, you want a Mercedes. Well, at that point, I can help you to maybe paint the Beetle a different color, but I'm probably not going to get you a Mercedes. But if I had been with you from the beginning, I could help you position for the Mercedes, if that makes sense. So it's ideal to get in early. Um, one progression might be to, to join the academy. And then if you don't find everything you need there and you need some time with me, you could upgrade um, to time with me. So that's another path. And sometimes people do that. Well, I'm going to advocate for either or both pathways um, that candidates work with you early and intensively and at whatever level they are most comfortable. Um, I I will be, I'll say this again. I, when we first met, I don't, I, I, we met because you reached out and I don't, always consider those reach outs because I don't know the source. I was delighted in our first chat. I think we spoke for an hour and a half um, about, I don't even know what, um, and um, and the work that we do as well, of course. And um, you shared with me a, a snippet of, um, of what you do. Um, and I, I was thrilled. I've never met anybody who does what you do. As you said, it's, it's a rare thing. Um, I think it's unique, Amy. I don't know that there's anybody else doing it. And if they are, they're approaching it probably as an adversarial um, coaching. They're, they're teaching you how to stand up for yourself and demand what you're worth. I don't do that because I think it's a mistake. Well, with that and your your demeanor, uh, I think is is emblematic of the way you engage in these kinds of conversations. Um, and I have enjoyed every conversation that we have had, and I've seen your work in action. And I am I am a believer, uh, and I will continue to recommend that the people that I work with talk to you. Um, and I'm going to start now that I know. I'm going to invite them to speak to you early. Um, they are amazing people. Deserve amazing compensation for the amazing work they do. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of coaches out there and a lot of coaching. And I think one of the things that I offer is um, a straight line to actual value. Like you're going to spend money on this, but you're going to recoup a lot more at the finish line. At least that's the goal. I can't ever guarantee that somebody will get uh, a lot more money. But what I can do is say, I think you're going to maximize the offer that they would give. Now, sometimes companies put their, all their cards on the table and they, they, they offer what they offer and that's the best offer. But there's a safe way of exploring whether that is the best offer. And you might go through that process and discover, you know what, I think we got their best offer. And then you can at least go away sleeping at night knowing that you just didn't leave $70,000 on the table. Like I've, I've been on the other side of that. Um, not, too long ago, I was negotiating on behalf of a company and was interviewing a um, senior director level uh, person who worked for, you know, she worked in another industry and had a big pile of unvested stock and had a whole bunch of, of bonus that she was going to leave on the table if she said yes. The company that I was representing at the time did not have stock. 
So it was all cash in the deal. And to make her whole on all of that was going to be like, memory serves, it was like $120,000, $130,000 that we would have to add into the package. What the candidate didn't know is that there was a $60,000 cap on what we could do before we went to um, a compensation committee, which was really political. So it was possible. You just had to have the right political sponsorship to go get more than 60000 So my task as the recruiter in that situation was to see if I could close this person below 60000 I could come up with a way of getting her to accept this and be happy with it and excited about it. So I worked her through that process knowing that if we had to, we could, you know, the hiring manager was ready to go champion this. But anytime you go up the ladder like that, there's a chance somebody well above you would say, this is expensive. Are you sure we need to do this? Or this is expensive. Maybe you don't need this position after all. That's why hiring managers are reluctant unless they really, really need the person. Well, this person was phenomenal. Uh, she probably could have asked to be made whole on everything, but she didn't. And I think she did it because she wanted the opportunity. She was willing to leave a little bit on the table in order to take it. And at the end of the day, she felt like the offer was fair and reasonable. And so she said yes. Um, so assuming that the final offer was 60K of, of buyout, she left 60 or 70,000 on the table. A couple of easy questions could have revealed that it was possible. Just what's the process? What's the risk? Are we all willing to engage in that risk? Yes, let's do it. So, and there are story after story, uh, things like that. Very often recruiters will get negotiating room pre-approved so they don't have to go back and get a counter offer approved. Uh, how that usually looks is the hiring manager will say, well, I want you to start at 120,000. You can go up to 135. And if you have to go over 135, then come back to me. And here's a $10,000 signing bonus. Use it if necessary. So when a recruiter has all that stuff, they don't just come out with a 135 plus 10. You know, they'll start at 120 and they'll see what they have to do. And very, very often, this is why I'm confident saying that 70 to 80% of people leave money on the table. I know because I've been able to close below the cap very often, <laughs> most of the time. Um, so feeling out whether that money is there, how to, how to go about asking for it safely without putting the offer at risk, that's what I offer and that's what I do. Well, if the goal is to make everybody, the hiring manager, the recruiter, the candidate, all feel whole and yes. comfortable and happy, why not make that set point at a slightly more optimal location? And it sounds like that is your sweet spot, is helping yeah. everybody feel like they've come out the right way and feel well, well compensated for it. Yes. And it's quite satisfying, actually, to to go through this process and come out with extra money, especially if it's salary that pays you month after month. You have a couple hours of, of process. Sometimes it's 10 minutes. At the end of this process, it's 10 minutes of asking the right questions and putting something in the right words. Just had one close this week uh, where there was 
I don't know, an hour of conversation prepping the person and then um, helping her to wordsmith the request and kind of position the request, getting the right leverage in there. And uh, she reported this week that the offer was accepted, the counter offer that she proposed was accepted, and it was 15,000 more than the initial offer. And for her, that was an hour of working with me and 10 minutes of working with the company based on what I, how I told her to approach it. And now she's got 15,000 a year extra coming in just because she, she, she reached out that way and was able to, to do it. Then it seems incumbent on anybody who is listening or anybody who is listening, who knows somebody who's going through this process that they have to visit your website. So yeah, salary, I think they yeah. right? Yes. Salary.coach. Did I get that right? Yes. Um, salary.coach is my coaching website and the Salary Coach Academy can be found at salarycoachacademy.com. I implore you, the audience, to visit the website of John Gates, Salary Coach Extraordinaire. He is the person to listen to in this realm, the only one of his kind. I know him to be a stand-up guy, really good at what he does, and I will be regularly mentioning your name among my client base. So I hope audiences out there are listening to the kind of value that you might be putting at risk if you're not engaging someone like John and that you know that you can really succeed if you start early in the process, build up that goodwill, that rapport with the recruiter and the hiring team, and you know you're going to come out better on the other side. Well, thank you so much, Amy. Those very, very kind words. And I appreciate knowing you as well. I have all the trust in the world for what you do for candidates, helping them to market themselves. And so I appreciate that as well. I know that it's not easy work, but you get great results. And I appreciate you so much for uh, just inviting me to be on the podcast and talk a little more about what I do. One of the hardest things about doing what I do is that people don't understand what I do because there's nobody else doing it. People don't understand uh, the process that I might go through or what it might be like to work with me or why might they want to spend money on something like this. So this opportunity is very special for me to be able to talk to people that might be listening to your podcast. And I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Thank you again. The pleasure is entirely mine. I am so glad you are here on How I Hire podcast. I hope that our listeners will tune in and hear this advice at least once, more than once. Visit salary. Yes, salary.coach or salarycoachacademy.com. My friends, I'm so glad you were here with me today on How I Hire. Mr. John Gates, thank you again for joining us today. I am really, really glad that we had this chat. Thank you, Amy. Honor is all mine, and I appreciate you.